Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to be all over the place this morning. As you're turning there, let me say I need to apologize. Uh, well, kind of apologize. I don't really apologize, but I kind of need to apologize. Um, is that last week uh, we were talking about, you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, what it means to, uh, to pursue godliness in a way where it's intense, because that's what Paul talks about to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 in training and pursuing him in the effort that's required to get into the Word and to pray and to seek Him and to live, our, live a life on mission and all that. And then I told you that this morning I was going to go through something very practical with you this morning and kind of give you a very practical training, training plan. And I'm going to just punt on that for this week. Uh, we'll probably do that the last uh, Sunday of this year or maybe the first one in December. Uh, part of the, the reason for that is um, in 2020, we got something that we feel like the Lord has led us to do. It, it's nothing really profound. It's super, super simple. But one of the things we're going to do as a church is we're all going to be on the same Bible reading plan. And so through uh, in 2020, we're going to ask that you just read one chapter a day, just five days a week. And then for those that want to, uh, we're going to, one of the practical things I'm going to give you to do is how to kind of read through that passage every day, but also kind of journal through it to ask some questions about it, um, also from the scriptures, observe, observation, interpretation, and application, uh, but also uh, some questions to ask about your own heart. And we believe that it's just a, a tiny little thing that um, God is going to use to help knit our hearts together, that every day when you wake up, and hopefully if you open your Bible and again just read that one chapter out loud, that you're going to know that other brothers and sisters here at Mercy Hill are reading the same chapter, and so that we can all be praying for each other and have the same truth kind of coming into us, and hopefully the Lord will just make us one. And, but we'll be talking about that in a couple weeks. What I want to talk about this morning is something that if you've been at Mercy Hill Church for any amount of time, it's, I don't think I'm going to be saying anything new to you this morning. I don't think that this is going to be something that, that you've never heard before. In fact, I hope it's something that it's not the first time that you've heard this before, because if that's true, then I haven't been doing my job. Um, but what I want to talk to you about this morning is the grace of God. Um, grace is a really, 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 really big deal. Amen? Grace is a big deal. Grace has to be central to absolutely everything that we do, but not just, it, guys, it can't just be up here. It cannot just be up here. It's got to be at the core of who we are, that we know that God has uh, poured out His love for us and that He has done something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And this is kind of simple, but this past week I just was reminded again of how Paul, who wrote 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament or letters, the epistles, um, to mainly to churches, but also to some individuals like Timothy and Titus and Philemon. But he begins every single one of those letters, and he ends, not all of them, but most of them, with just these words, grace to you. Grace to you. And yes, it was a common greeting uh, back in the day. Peter does the same thing in his letters. John does it at the beginning of, and the end of the book of Revelation. But it's not just a greeting. <laughs> Guys, it's, it's absolutely everything. That this morning, what you need more than anything else, it doesn't matter if you know that you need it or not, you still need it. Your need is still the same. What you need is grace. What you need is God to do for you 
what you cannot do for yourself. It's what every single one of us needs. And at Mercy Hill Church, I have no deeper desire than that when people come in contact with us, not just here on a Sunday morning, this is just one time a week that we, that we gather and we sing and we worship and we get to come together and we get to rejoice in all that God has done for us through His Son Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. But whenever anybody comes in contact with us anywhere, that this grace would almost become something that's tangible. That this grace would become something that, that people just can't not get on them because it's oozing out of our life because we are so deeply rooted and grounded in it and saturated with it. Um, you know, se- several months ago, uh, back in, uh, I believe it was June, my wife had a little booth at, uh, at the Vintage Fair over in Walnut Creek. You guys remember this? Anybody go to the Vintage Fair? They sell stuff. Anybody? Okay. Um, it was kind of, a, we were setting up the night before, and there was this uh, thunderstorm that rolled in out of nowhere. And we were there, I don't know if you guys remember this, but the whole, I mean, this massive tent, I don't know how big this tent was, but this tent, like, the storm came and got it and just sucked it up and blew it over. And we were, there were people out there, you know, we were trying to hold down the poles and hold all this stuff down. But then, you know, so there's no tent, there's, there's no covering, and the rain is coming down. And I was just, I was completely soaked. Have you guys ever been completely soaked? I mean, just where, you know, your shoes, your socks, your shirt, your undergarments, you know, whatever, like everything is just, you are soaked to the bone. And uh, had anybody encountered me during that time when I was just drenched, or if you had encountered anybody else that would have been there, and if you would have just shaken their hand, or if you would have went to give them a hug, or if they would have sat in your car, or anything, what they, what we were saturated with would have also been deposited onto anything else that we touched. Whether that was in, on your car seat, or, you know, again, giving somebody a hug, or whatever. Because we were saturated in it. We were absolutely soaked. And I believe that it is God's will for us individually and as a church that we completely be saturated with the grace of God, guys. That every single time somebody comes in contact with us individually or collectively as a group, that they leave at least, at the very least, with the residue of grace on them. That they cannot come in contact with us without being influenced somewhat by the grace of God uh, because of what He's done for us. And in Ephesians chapter 2, um, we're going to start here. We're, I'm going to kind of be all over this morning. Uh, I, I just want to look at what Paul has to say about grace and then look a little bit also, not only what Paul has to say about grace, again, he starts and ends almost every one of his letters with these words, grace to you. That's what he's trying to impart. But also understanding a little bit of Paul's story out of Acts chapter 20, um, that we could understand this man, that like everything that he says is about grace and imparting something to people that they do not deserve. But in Ephesians chapter 2, if you're there, let me start reading in verse (coughs) 1. And he says like this, I like the way the NIV puts this. The ESV says, and you were, but the the NIV just says, and as for you, and as for you, and as for you. 
And what's important about this, we don't, we don't have time to go back and look at it, but if you read Ephesians chapter 1, and just go back, you know, I don't want to give anybody, you know, nightmares or flashbacks here, but in Ephesians chapter 1, if you remember, like, I don't know when this was, like, 7th, 8th, maybe ninth grade English class, but you, you know, remember you got all these, and this stuff used to drive me nuts. I love it now because I love the Bible in itself. Remember, you got, like, your subjects and your verbs and your objects and your, remember all that stuff? Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, no. Um, but... As you, as you read Ephesians chapter 1, if you wanted to break this down just kind of in a literary fashion, talking and, you know, and, and breaking it down, those te- technical terms in terms of the, the subject and the verb and the object. Remember, the subject, in a sense, that's the person that is acting. That is the person that is doing the verb. That's the person that is, that is doing the action. And the object is that which is being acted upon, right? Okay. And so as you read Ephesians chapter 1, what you'll find is that over and over and over again, the subject is not us, it is God. That God is the one that is doing the action, and we are the object. We are the one that is being acted upon, namely by His grace. That He, from before the beginning of time, He is doing something, and He's doing something to us. And so, I say all that because then when you come to Ephesians chapter 2, it's like Paul starts off the letter and he's just like, this is what God's doing, this is what God's doing, this is what God is doing. And then he comes to Ephesians chapter 2 and he's like, well, I haven't forgotten about you guys. But here's here's what he says about us. As for you, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Everybody. There's nobody that gets a pass except Jesus Christ. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of all mankind. Now, so he's been talking about, this is what God has done, this is what God has done, this is what God has done. Well, and and as for you, and as for you, well, here's our our part. (laughs) It is bleak, to say the least, amen? Now, this is, you know, I, I don't have time here, but, you know, where we build out kind of the doctrine of total depravity. That there is nothing good in you apart from Christ. There is nothing good in you. There is nothing in you that is worth redeeming. This is what we get. This is our part. When it comes to us being the, the, the subject and, and, and us doing the action and us acting upon something, here's what we get. We're living in rebellion, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we're carrying out the passions of our flesh, the dis- whatever desires come into our body and our mind, and we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of all mankind. It's not just a few individuals, it's not just people that you know, are really bad or caught in specific sins, it's every single one of us because every single one of us has rebelled against God. And so when you understand this backdrop of how the Bible speaks about who you are by nature, which is an object of wrath, you then understand like what I read earlier about like if you're the shepherds or you're Mary or you're Zachariah or you're you or I or whoever and you begin to hear about this holy God and you encounter him and he shows up, it's understandable why the first thing that would, your first reaction might be to be terrified. 
And so like, there's a part of that that's good. That's right. You get because he is holy and we're not. That's where everything was at. Verse 4, probably the two, two of the most beautiful words in all of the scripture. One understood in their context. So beautiful. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, verse 4. What is God going to do with us? Verse 4, but God, but God, we were enemies, we were rebels, we rebelled against him, we shook our fists at him, we said, I will not go your way, I will not do what you want me to do, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he says, he says it again. In case you didn't catch it the first time, like you, you, you were dead. He says, you, you're dead in your trespasses. But God made us alive. And so Paul, he's talking about God as the subject. He's doing the action. He's acting upon us. And he gives us a little part here in these first three verses. And then he comes very quickly back to God again as the subject. And guys, that's the good news of the gospel. And I ask you this morning, is God the subject? Is, is, he, is he the main point of your life? Just like he's the main point of this passage of Scripture and all of the Word. Is he the center? Because if he is the center, then there's going to be grace abounding to us. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What did he do? Here's him acting again. Here's the verb. Even while we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul, he, again, he's, he has a flow of thought here. He's, he's talking and he's going to talk about you know, how he raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. But then he gives, <coughs> and again, I'm sorry for all the you know, English grammar lessons here this morning, but at the end of verse 5, you would have what you would call an interrupter. Like he, he interrupts his own sentence. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't really fit with everything else that he's saying, but he's, he just he can't pass up this moment to insert this phrase right here. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then here's the interrupter that he has to get in there. By grace, you have been saved. Why does he do that? Why does he use bad grammar? Why does he go against the rules of not just English, but even, even back then? Again, and by the way, if you, like Paul was the king of the run-on sentence. In the Greek, like there's just like verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1, it's all just one big run-on sentence. Makes me feel a lot better about my English. And makes me want to tell my English teacher from ninth grade to forget about it, see, and it didn't matter, all my lack of punctuation. But he, he puts this in here because he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand grace, and he wants us to get this, that Guys, to truly understand grace, you've got to understand that God, out of, not because you deserved it at all, but out of who he is, because he is rich in mercy, because he is great with love, 
even when we were dead, he made us alive in him. This is grace. Here's my point this morning. And again, I hope that this isn't the first time you've heard this, but I want to remind all of us, all of us of this this morning because I want everybody that comes in contact with us to experience this grace and to get it on them, that they would be drawn into the fullness of the grace that God has for them as well. That guys, long before you were ever doing anything that could possibly be good because you were by nature an object of wrath, God sovereignly chose. He decided to be kind to you. He decided to do something for you when you absolutely, positively did not deserve it. While you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, God, out of the abundance of who he is, he decided to love us. He decided, as he says here, to make us alive together in Christ Jesus. That if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, listen to me, yes and amen, absolutely, positively. There was a moment where you, you raised your hand, you walked an aisle, you made a decision, you prayed a prayer, you signed a card. I don't know what you did. I don't know what it looked like in the moment when you decided to trust him. But my point is that long before you ever, ever decided to make a decision for him, that God was doing something in your life to draw you to himself. That while you were dead, God did not respond to you in your deadness as you deserve, but he responded to you with mercy and grace because that is who he is. You know, it's the same idea that I, I've heard people say before that, you know, um, and, and I know what they're uh, trying to get at. I kind of know where they get this from, but it's wrong. And I'm telling you, this is why theology matters. But I, I've heard people say before, even in regards to creation, they're like, well, God, just you're so precious to God that you know He was He was there in all of eternity past, and and He just wanted somebody to fellowship with, and you know, kind of like the idea, like you know, God was kind of lonely, and so He just He decided to make you. God was never, ever, ever, ever lonely. Because if he was, that would mean that he somehow was imperfect, that he somehow needed to create something that he did not already have. God is fully complete forever and ever, not only in the future, but also in all of eternity past. He has always existed, and he has never needed anything. And he did not create you because he needed you. He created each and every single one of us out of the overflow of the joy and the mercy and the kindness of who he is. And in the same way, that's exactly how your salvation happened. That he didn't save you because he saw something good in you. He saved you because it's who he is. He's a savior. And he came to seek and save that which is lost. And guys, if you don't get this, then you'll never fully understand grace. The reason I'm so passionate about this is because we've got to be saturated with it. And we get, we, you know, we, there's this wonderful passage in Ezekiel where it talks about this river that he sees flowing out of the new temple. It's like this prophetic vision. And it talks about how, you know, he goes into the water, into his ankles. Like, oh, that's good. Stick your toes in the water, you know, down at the beach in Florida or whatever. And then he wades on in up to his knees. And then he wades in up to his waist. And then after a little bit longer, he, he kind of just jumps all in to be caught up into the river. And that's how many of us are with grace. We, we, we know it's good. And we dip our toes in. And then we let it get up to our ankles and to our knees. 
and maybe to our waist. But it just seems like not enough of us are saturated with it. It seems like not enough of us are swimming in it. That where people, when people come in contact with us, they experience this grace because it's at the core of absolutely everything that we are and know. Um, and guys, before you ever were doing anything that was worthy of saving, Jesus saw you as a Savior. And he decided to make you alive, to come to you, and to give us this new life. God was doing something long before we ever deserved it. And if you flip real quickly over to Acts chapter 9, again, thinking through the early church and remembering what it must have been like that God, um, you know, or I'm sorry, the Bible had not been written yet. Uh, I mean, they had the Old Testament, but even still, it wasn't, it's not like it is now. It's just such a different day that, you know, our, um, we each have a copy of these scriptures and all that God has done so that we could know his nature and his character and his ways. And you think about Paul, who again wrote, you know, almost half of the New Testament. And again, he's just constantly, grace to you, grace to you, grace to you, grace to you. That's the heading under which everything else falls that he writes and that he communicates. Why in the world was he so crazy about grace? Well, when you think about his story and the experience that he had in meeting the resurrected Lord, you begin to understand why he writes things like he does in Ephesians chapter 2, where, again, he says, we're dead, but God did this. You were rebellious, but God did this. You weren't deserving of mercy, but God did this. And in Acts chapter 9, you have his story, and it sums it up really quickly. Some of you guys know Paul's kind of biography. Some of you don't, but Acts chapter 9, verse 1, sums it up well. But Saul, again, at this time he's called Saul later on, changes his name to Paul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. <laughs> so he's he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is a religious zealot. And he is persecuting the church of God. He is intentionally standing against all that God is doing through his church, through the early church in the book of Acts this time after Jesus had risen. So Saul is breathing out threats and murder. Verse 2, and he asked them for letters to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, and again, that's what wasn't just called Christianity, it was called the way. It was this, this way of life, this way of following Jesus. That's how the early church was known. But if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, so are you with me? Like, this is, this is Paul. This is what he's, quote-unquote, doing for God. This is what he has to offer God. Like he thinks he's serving him, but he's not serving him. He's diametrically opposed to the purposes and plans of God. Are you with me? It's what he's doing. 
There's no hint here anywhere that he's somehow, you know, secretly meeting with them, and then his heart changes, and well, some of these guys aren't so bad, and he feels convinced. He's just like he is completely against what God is doing. Verse 3, now as he, Paul, as he went on his way, as he went on his dead, rebellious, following his sinful religious passions of his flesh, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. (laughs) And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, and he said, and these are some of the saddest words to me in all of the Bible, because Paul would have told anybody that he knew God. He wouldn't have just told them that he knew God. He would have said that he absolutely had a right relationship with God and that he was passionate for the law and that he, was, he, he thought that he was doing God's work by arresting these Christians. These words are so sad. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? He didn't know him at all. When he encountered this risen Christ, this risen God, this risen God-man, he has no idea who he is. Who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And again, I just wanted us to get this, and I'm I'm sure many of us are, are familiar with this, because you see played out here in Paul's life in living color in this biographical story account exactly what he just explained to us in Ephesians chapter 2. That while Paul was dead in his trespasses and sins, following the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in all of us who are disobedient, following his own passions and desires and thoughts, completely rebellious against God. While he's busy doing that, God does something else. God comes to him, and he meets him. Paul, Saul, was doing absolutely nothing that deserved to be redeemed. God did it out of the overflow of the riches and kindness of who he is. Are you with me? And guys, if you don't see your life in light of this storyline, that God is the subject, he's doing the action, and we're just the object that is getting, being acted upon because, not because it's random, but because he is good. You will never understand grace. You'll never understand it. You'll never be saturated with it. Is it long before you and I ever desire to do anything good for God? And I know, you know, he's, he saved us, and so we do. We want to serve him. We want to go. We want to tell people we want to serve. We want to help people. We want to give. I like all that stuff. But long before any of that, 
God had to do a miracle in our dead hearts. He had to make us alive because we weren't alive. We were dead. We were against him. And again, part of the reason I wanted to share this with you this morning, I know you guys have heard this before, is that even in my own life, I want to fully admit to you that there are times after 20 years of really following Jesus, 20 years after he saved me and walking with him, that I, um, I forget how thankful I should be. I forget all that he did for me. And when I forget, I'm not saturated. I'm not soaked. People come in contact with me, and grace doesn't rub off on them at all. You guys have heard me share this so many times, but I just feel like it's what the Lord wants me to do this morning. But yeah, I, uh, for me, it was, again, when God made me alive, it was towards the very end of my senior year of high school. I graduated in May of 2000. And uh, that whole, my whole senior year, uh, the only way I can put it is that God had just been hot on my trail. And again, I've never really had to argue with things that I see in Scripture in terms of God being at work in my life before I was ever seeking Him. Because it's, I don't know about your story, but that's my story. <laughs> I wasn't seeking Him, I was running from Him. As hard as I could. And yeah, I grew up in church and I put on a good front, but I was not like, I didn't want to surrender. But He, he would not leave me alone. And uh, and and you know he'll let us go for a while, and and you know if you fight against him, uh, good luck. <laughs> it's not going to end well for you, probably. Um, if you refuse to to heed his grace and his mercy, but he he uh. Towards the end of my senior year, I was just, uh, all I can say is like my, you know, my fighting against what he was trying to do um, in my life just kind of came, just kind of came, came to a head. You know, he, and he allows us, he allows us to run until we get exhausted uh, and we don't have any more fight left in us. And again, it's all his sovereign grace and his gift to us. But, uh, and you guys, I, again, if you've been coming here for any amount of time, I, uh, you've heard me share this so many times, but, but I'll never forget my, you know, the life that uh, Hannah, who was my girlfriend and by God's grace is my wife now, the life that we were living is we'd go to parties, you know, on Friday and Saturday nights and we'd go to church Sunday morning. And Hannah, a few months earlier, had really given her heart to the Lord and she was sincerely saved. And I, uh, in my rebellious stubbornness had just kind of brought her back down and uh and one saturday night i was dropping her off at her house 
after a party, and, and uh, she looked at me, and she just said, um, she said, does God still love me? Because we knew that what, the way we were living wasn't right. And, uh, and in that moment, that was a, I, I was just overwhelmingly convicted by the Holy Spirit because I knew that what God had done in her life was real and I was the one that had really worked to bring her back down. And, uh, and again, God was orchestrating all this, but I'll never forget driving down her driveway that night as I didn't really, when she asked if God still loved her, I, I didn't even, I didn't really give a good response. I just mumbled around. She got out, and as I was driving down her driveway, I just remember praying, God, I'm sorry. Please do something. Um, and again, because of the life we were living, that was Saturday night, but Sunday morning, I picked her up for church, because that's what we did. And that morning, the uh, pastor was preaching out of Galatians and just giving a message that was uh, pretty basic, um, pretty similar to what I'm sharing with you this morning, that God loves us, he cares for us, he's not going to change his mind about us, but, but that good news that morning, and here's the thing, guys. I, I had heard that same thing a thousand times. It, it was no new information to me. But that, but that morning, God took that same message that I'd heard with my physical ears a thousand times. He he took that message and he opened the ears and the eyes of my heart. And on that morning, it was a miracle. I heard that same message again, but on that morning, he made me alive. He made me alive. And he, as best I could describe using biblical language, he reached down with his righteous right hand and he put something in me that I previously did not have, which was his life and his grace. Uh-huh. And all I want to tell you this morning is that that exact same miracle is available to you. His life, he desires for his life. His, this ex, not, again, not just a textbook definition of grace, but he desires for this grace, this life to be in you. and to totally change you forever. Amen? That's the good news. And for many of you here this morning, I know that you know Jesus is Savior. I know that 
you've experienced what I've experienced, although the practical aspects of our story might not be exactly the same. The reality is the same, and that God has put his new life in you. But Mercy Hill Church, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, we can never, ever, ever forget it. Never. His grace and what he has done for us, it not only saves us, but it is also how we go forward. And it is how he wants the gospel to go forward and how he wants the mission to go forward. And this grace changes absolutely everything. And again, at the core of who we are and what he has called us to do as a church, it is for us to impart grace through the words that we speak, the way that we act, the way that we give, the way that we serve. It is to impart grace to people. It is to do things for people that they do not deserve. It is to say kind words when they don't deserve kind words. It is to give generous gifts when they do not deserve generous gifts. It is to serve and lay down our lives when they do not deserve to be served. Because that is exactly what God has done for us. And I, I think that sometimes we, uh, we're so quick to run to giving people good advice. You've heard me say this before, but I just, I can't. This has just been the season I've been living in lately. We're so, we're so quick to give people good advice. And the Bible does. It, it, it has a lot of good advice. A lot of good practical things you should, you should do. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Good, but yeah, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't murder. It's not good. <laughs> okay? A lot of good advice. But if we want to impart grace, we've got to become a lot better at giving good news than we are at giving good advice. The good news has to come first. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to just begin to close. Um, just one thing again that I, uh, that's just, uh, I guess another just pointer that uh, one of the reasons I just want to share this, this message with you this morning is a couple weeks ago, uh, maybe a month or two ago now in our small church, uh, we were just having a good old time. And I forget, was it somebody's birthday or what? But I remember there was cake there. You can tell that's how my mind works. I don't remember much about the night other than that, that there was cake. Um, we were all eating cake and, uh, and stuff and, and, and having a good time. And, you know, we gathered up around Zach and Katie's table after a little bit. And, uh, um, and we didn't have much time. I said, why don't we just go around and everybody just share the, the number one challenge that's going on in your life right now. And then I said, after you share that challenge, then we're all going to practice sharing with you. Yeah, we can share good advice, but not first. 
I said, you share the challenge, and the first thing we're going to do is we're going to share good news with you. And we're going to share with you how the good news first affects that. And then, yeah, maybe we'll give you some good advice, but we're going to share good news first. We're going to speak the gospel. We're going to speak words of grace to your situation first before the good advice. Make sense? And, uh, and so we started off, and I think Marion shared first, and then I forget who was there. Zach and Katie, I know, were there because we were at their house. It'd be kind of weird if they weren't, but anyway. So we're doing this, and, and then I remember, we just, but we got about halfway around, and Ashley is part of our small church. And we're continuing to share. And Ashley goes, this is hard. And, and, and it was. And, and one of the things that convicted me in that moment, because it wasn't, it wasn't just hard for Ashley. I'm not knocking Ashley in any way. But, but one of the things that struck me is one of the reasons it's hard sometimes to share the good news first, to share grace first to people's situations is that it's just not what we're used to doing. We're first used to giving good advice. We're used to imparting our great wisdom, our great knowledge, our great practical applications for marriage or for work or for relational issues or whatever it is. But brothers and sisters, I just want to ask you, is that what changed your life? Is good advice what changed you? No. It was good news. That just like the angels in the Christmas story, you know, that I read at the beginning, they showed up and they just say, got some good advice for you. Praise God. I said, no, don't be afraid. For we bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. And guys, what I want for us more than anything else is to first know to be rooted and grounded in, to be saturated in the grace of God so that it would come out of our lives to other people. Make sense? Guys, he loves you. He really does. And I pray that this morning that if there's anybody here that uh, you were where I was at about 20 years ago, where I'd grown up in church and I'd known a lot about God and um, you know, I'd said the prayer when I was a little kid and asked Jesus into my heart, and I'm not making light of any of that, but I don't know, I don't know that I had new life in me. I certainly didn't understand this grace that we've been talking about. And if that's you this morning, but you want to know this grace, you want to know what it is to have God lay hold of your heart and to put something in you that was not there before. I, it's not complicated. You don't have to come to me. You don't have to come to anybody except Jesus. All you have to do is right now, just trust him. Just trust him. That's it. All those who call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Because he's good and because he's merciful. Um, because he decided to do something for us when we didn't deserve it. Amen? Father, thanks for this morning. Lord, we love you. Fathers, we come uh, to your table this morning. Father, and, uh, partake of the bread and the cup, your broken body and your shed blood. 
uh, we're just reminded again about what you chose to do for us. That even while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Father, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son that whoever just believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys stand with me as we sing. If you're helping serve communion, you can come. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me.